Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 190 with my guest, Abby Savell. Abby uh, is one of the co-owners and founders of uh, LA Percussion Rentals with her husband, Dan Savell, who was on the podcast about a year ago. Uh, it was nice to get to catch up with Abby. I'd only really known her through Facebook and other social media outlets. And uh, she reached out to me to chat when I put sort of an open call on Facebook about uh, chatting on the podcast. So I really enjoyed getting to chat with Abby and getting to know her background a little bit better. We talk about things like you know what it's like to run a business during COVID and um, gender disparity in the field and all of that sort of stuff. And so, again, enjoyed this conversation. Hope you do as well. Without further ado, this is Abby Savell. Take care. Fantastic. All right. Abby Savelle. I have a pen here too. Sweet. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about all that, but um, let's gavel this to order. Is that is that okay? Yep. All right. We are on the record, Abby. Okay. Um, and do you go by Abby or, or Abigail? What do you prefer? Abby. Abby. Okay, great. Well, yep. you know, you know I, I've done a podcast with your husband, Dan, and... Yep. Um, I knew I met Dan through LA Percussion Rentals. You did you found it with him? Yeah. So, but you're someone who I didn't. I don't. When did we first meet in person? Maybe when you came and visited, and you. I feel like it was it was maybe maybe the time you guys were playing on the Marimba Eroica, but I'm not totally sure. Okay. All right. Well, just it just in, in my life, I run a you know I run across Dan more than I run across you in person, and for whatever reason, um, that's the case. Yeah. But but I reached out on Facebook a couple of weeks ago and was like, "Who wants to talk?" And I appreciate yeah. that. I'm always curious when not suspicious. I'm curious of people who respond are like, "I want to talk." Like, <laughs> and I like that because I feel like I don't have to beg somebody. Like, if, I I just know the conversation is going to be easier than with right. me begging somebody to talk. So um, I'm curious, just before we get into you as a person, what, what, why did you, what do you want to, what did you want to talk about? What prompted you to reach out? Um, aside you know, from, you know, it's all know good. Like, um, first of all, it may be really difficult to talk to. So <laughs> don't count your chickens before they have. <laughs> I think you've challenged me. Um, I, I work a lot in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is probably why you didn't really know me before. Um, I kind of like working in the background. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a person that actually, <laughs> I'm not a person. I'm like the total cross between an introvert and an extrovert. Mm. You know, there are times where I absolutely want to be by myself and I don't want to talk to anyone at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I need that time. Actually, I've realized it more as I've gotten older, how much I needed that time. Like when I was a kid, I always had my own bedroom and like I realize that that's kind of like the that's definitely part of my personality, mm. um, but I think that as time has gone on, um, I have been in the background a lot. But I think also that I'm I get kind of tired of always talking to people online and social media and typing stuff all the time. And so I think that I think that like with everything and all the the changes that we've gone through in this last year, I think that I'm a little more maybe a little more like willing to be social. <laughs> Well, I, again, like I, you, you sort of, I want to touch on something, uh, you mentioned social media and just sort of like the desire not to type to people anymore. Um, I want to get like you, you are someone, uh, and pardon me if I mischaracterize. So please tell me if I'm off base, but you don't, you're not afraid to get in the mix on a comment thread and voice your opinion. And I'm afraid Mm -hmm. I'm terrified of comment threads and, uh, so anyway, I want to talk to you about that because I'm envious of you. I'm jealous, and I want to learn how to be braver in those <laughs> in those spaces. But before we get into the- there, are, but there are plenty of times I actually don't say stuff. Let me just say that oh, I, I actually have a filter. But yes, thank you. No, I no, guess. no, I, that, I didn't want to imply that you had, that you didn't have a filter. Um, <laughs> I just, (laughs) it's, it's, I want to get to know, like, I really actually only know you through Facebook and I feel like this is someone who knows what she stands for and isn't afraid to say it. So, okay. I know, I know that much. So we'll go from there. But before we get into any of that messy stuff, can you just go back to like baby Abby and like what, what got you into 
percussion and then how did you how did you get into basically doing what you're doing today and i know that's a pretty broad question but yeah you start where you well, start I mean, and we'll i'll give there. you I, i'll give you the shorter version because i don't want to spend the whole like hour on all of that do we have an hour i don't even yeah, know okay fine, whatever. um <laughs> We're loose. Well, I'm sure everyone doesn't want to hear exactly, you know, all the details about why, but... Well, you know what? This um, isn't up to them. It's up to me and you. So I don't care what oh, they okay. think. Okay. <laughs> you know, we scrub forward. So there you go. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> uh, my parents characterize me as a pretty wacky kid. Mm-hmm. So I remember finding a lot of humor in things. And I was always a kid that was into slapstick. Mm. So... Um, I just so we're clear, like slapstick as a form of humor, like that's a, that's a genre of of the physical comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, I made my, my dad used to go to the video rental spot, like on Fridays Mm -hmm. and I made him rent three amigos at least 15 times. (laughs) What What did your, what did your parents do for a living? My mom is a, a primary care physician, so she's an internist. Mm-hmm. And my dad is was he's still he's still alive. <laughs> Maybe it's not like he died. Um, he he works for the government. He actually works for the federal government. Uh, hmm. He actually was first in hospital administration, and mm-hmm. then he got a job in hospital administration that moved us out to California from Chicago when mm-hmm. I was nine. And they were kind of looking to move anyway because they were kind of isolated in Chicago and they were getting really tired of uh, dealing with the weather and stuff like that. That's where you were so born. They were kind of, you were born in Chicago. I was born in Wisconsin. Wisconsin actually. I was born okay. in Madison. I okay. lived there until I was two. Okay. And then moved to Chicago and then lived there until I was nine and then moved out to California. Mm. I remember Chicago very well. I loved it. I loved it. Mm. So... And I feel like it's it totally molded me partially into the person I am now. Why do you say that? So, um, desiring to have a yard, you know, where I live, a lot of LA people have these little tiny yards. Like, unless you basically bought your house in, let's just say maybe the '90s and earlier, you really can't afford any real yard here. Mm-hmm. And so, I've always desired to have some space, some outdoor space. You know, we had a gigantic front yard. My parents weren't like well off or anything, but you know, it was just like part of the deal. You had like this huge front yard, that was big and flat. We had a huge ginkgo tree mm. in the front. We had a pretty good sized backyard. Um, I spent a ton of time outdoors. I rolled logs over and picked up bugs. Like I was my deal. Like I collected bugs. I used to stand on my driveway. Cause we had one of those for us in California or like in LA, at least this isn't actually normal for you. Maybe it's more normal, but we had a detached garage with a really long driveway that went back there. And I used to stand in the driveway and I would, I would freeze and the Monarch butterflies for some reason had this pathway that would go basically down my driveway and over the garage and I would freeze and they would come land on me. And I thought that was like the most magical thing ever, like a whole bunch at one time. I thought that was the most magical thing ever. And this whole thing about being outdoors mm-hmm. really impacted me as I grew up. And it's still something I like really desire is to be outdoors more, but I'm finding it really difficult to get outside um, for mm-hmm. a bunch of different reasons. And um, I don't really want to move right now either. Like it's not really a good time to be doing that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, what Do was you, I saying? Well, I was- So, I mean- yeah, I was just gonna say I was curious, like the move. I'm always curious about people who move too, because I never did. I mean, I stayed. You know, my parents. I'm from Ohio, a very small town called Dover. Um, mm-hmm. Grew up in a cornfield, so everything you're, you know, I, I I didn't play with bugs so much, but I, you know, I I <laughs> I, I, I I was in the Boy Scouts. I did all those things, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, but I never moved anywhere, and so like that part of my psyche, like one of the, Adam Slowinski, he moved all over the place when he was a kid, and so. Mm-hmm. I'm curious for you, like, what are some things other than your appreciation for cold weather clothing? What was it about moving to California or moving Wisconsin to Chicago to California that you feel like changed the way you maybe see things? Like, are the way things maybe someone who grew up in California without seeing any of those things might see things differently? Have, did you, is there anything with you that you noticed along those lines? Well, 
there's things out here that if you grew up in Southern California, and I said Southern California versus Northern California, because the climate is a bit different here. It's much warmer overall. Mm -hmm. It's much less foggy overall. But you, there's just these things you take for granted out here. Like when we moved, my mom was like, your school is going to be outside. And that was just kind of dumbfounded by that yeah. whole idea. I'm still dumbfounded by it, and I know it exists. Yeah. I've been to them, you know. Yeah, there were there are no basements here. Mm-hmm. I mean, pretty much no basements in houses, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I picked up the like habit, the like, 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 which I do all the time. I actually remember picking up the habit. <laughs> But that's, a th- I mean, those sorts of things are, that's really common. I mean, I, I, when, if I'm in Trinidad for two weeks, there's parts of like, uh, it's subtle, but it's like, instead of saying good evening, it's good night is the way, yeah. you know, the Caribbean community <laughs> greets each other. And it's like, good night, good night. And I'll come back to the States and I'll say good night. And somebody's like, that's a turn. That's like when you say goodbye, you're like, good night, you know, yeah. in Trinidad, good night yeah. is a hello, you know, welcome. Yeah. And so I, I find myself slipping into those sort of that jargon if I'm in a place, so I can imagine living in Trinidad, if I lived there for years, what I would sound like to my mom, you know, coming mm-hmm. home. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's weird. Cause I, like I visited wherever Canada and I find myself, <laughs> it's one of their little things too. Of course mm-hmm. the A yeah. uh, and, and yeah. you know, um, even just visiting the Southwest or the South, I should say, um, you know, visiting Texas and things like that. When we went to Pasek or whatever, it's pretty funny. You know, you kind of, I guess you're still moldable at my age, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Our ages. I hope so. I'm probably around so. the same age. I don't know. I'm 41. Okay. Yeah. How, how I'm a old? little tiny bit younger than you, but. How old are you if you don't mind me asking? I'm 40. Okay. Oh. All right. So you're, um, we're the same. We're Generation yeah. Y or whatever that we're, right? We're Generation Z, Gen Z, Gen X. Zennial. We're Gen Zenial. X. Yeah. We're, we're in the Zennial. You've never read the Zennial? The whole no. thing about Zennials? No. We're like the combo of Gen X and, and uh, Gen X and Millennial, of course. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying real hard not to like, I hate those categories because I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I can hate the boomers all I want, but you know what house, <laughs> you know what house I slept in from years one to 18? A boomer's house. Like, like I, there's only so far I can really hold my ideological line before it fall falls apart. You know, um, we're yeah. all in this together. We're all responsible for how things move forward in one way or another. And whatever my, I'm, I'm horrified to know what people in like 50 years are going to be looking at Gen Z and be like, <laughs> did you guys even realize that you killed off every penguin? I'm like, no, yeah. I, I had no idea. Mm. I'm so sorry. I didn't yeah. know. Like, we were just trying to live stream. We didn't realize it was going to kill off all the penguins, you know. Oh, you know, what, whatever, whatever. The, I mean, you know, but in 1985, people weren't, you know, we're making decisions about hairspray and things. And it's like, no, nobody in that moment is like, you know, you might deplete the ozone layer and there's going to be a massive wave of melanoma. Yeah. Like, that's well, not, there was that's not talk the thought about process. It. You, you probably remember, we were pretty young in 85, but mm-hmm. I do remember there was talk about, there was Earth Day, mm-hmm. but it, I feel like it wasn't something that was lived. It wasn't yeah. lived and it wasn't like part of the mainstream culture. Yeah. And it wasn't, it certainly, there certainly weren't a lot of choices to make otherwise, you know? Mm-hmm. It was an ideal, but now I feel like it's more like, well, yeah, if you just throw trash out of your car, you're probably, someone's probably going to scream at you, you know? Right. It's a different, there's a different vibe now. The, the, the Yeah. Um, well, let, sorry, I, yeah. De- I derailed us. So your, your father picks up movies on Friday nights and I'm curious, yeah. like where, where in this time period did you get involved? Like, so we have slapstick humor, humor in the mix and you're yeah. watching Three Amigos. Like, when did the music part, when did you start to feel like being involved in music as like a jobby job was something you really wanted to do? Right. So super fast forward. I played piano from the age of six. Mm-hmm. My grandma bought us piano, started piano, did that for a number of years. Liked it, didn't love it. Like, I liked music, I think, more than piano, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't very good. My hands are really small, first mm-hmm. of all. I'm mm-hmm. not trying to, well, okay. Here's my excuse. My hands are really small and my sh- my fingers are actually relatively short. And I just kind of, I love the music and I love playing music and I love listening to music, but I, the piano thing was more of like, it's kind of like a gateway, but it certainly wasn't the be all end all for me. Mm. And then I kind of always had this idea that I either wanted to play like sax and I always had this fascination with xylophone, but I never really knew why. Mm-hmm. 
So anyway, I played violin actually for a second also on the way, which I just hated. It was just a terrible instrument for me. <laughs> so I played that in fourth grade for like six months, but I kept going with piano this whole time. Then in we're signing up for high school, like all the different, you know, classes and everything. And we're sitting at the kitchen table and my mom is looking at the schedule with me. And she says, <laughs> she says, Oh, Hey, look, if you sign up for PE, you can, or if you, I'm sorry, I totally blew that. If you sign up for band, you can get out of PE. So I was like, sweet. Cause I hated PE. Mm-hmm. And she said, I said, well, what instrument am I going to play? And she said, because I was playing piano. And I'm like, they're not going to have piano in band. She said, well, you know, xylophones are like a basically a giant piano. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And so that was kind of that. I mean, I joined and it was my high school was really competitive. Mm -hmm. So I don't know exactly how competitive they are nowadays, Mm-hmm. Um, I know all the staff is completely different now, mm-hmm. but I went to Mission Viejo High School because mm-hmm. I was in Orange County mm-hmm. and it was very competitive. It was basically like DCI. Mm. Yeah. That's, so did you march drum corps um, at all? Like when you like through no. your high? Okay. Because after the experience there, it was already so intense. I was like, okay, I think I've, that was cool. Mm-hmm. And I learned how to become like, like really, you know, all the stuff, the sport part of playing, right? Mm-hmm. But I was like, I don't need any more of this side of things. I totally realized what I got out of it and everything, but I kind of didn't really feel like I needed to keep going down that path. Mm-hmm. So um, sometimes, as performer, like I, I think about this as a yeah, as a you know, at forty one, and I have you know ten to fifteen years worth of students behind me. Like, what are the things I'm telling them that are important, and what are the things yeah. that actually aren't? And sometimes you're taught, whether it be through, you know, you see something on YouTube or you're, you're part of a drum corps that has a specific or you're in a particular steel band that relies on whatever. Like, the amount you actually need the party trick mm-hmm. in life, it's like, actually, mm-hmm. nope, you just need... Turns out that Soviet-era train with four moving parts, totally fine. <laughs> like, like that's all you need. Like, the ver- the fundamentals and the basics are what you need. Like, being able to do a format mallet, like, like, in every permutation, it's like, that's awesome. It's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. But the times yeah. when you might, like, be caught, in terms of evolution as a musician, I feel like I was like, oh, okay, there's some things. I grew this appendage in grad school. I don't need that anymore. <laughs> like, I have no need to play Rogashanti in my life. Yes. And I, you know, and so it's just interesting, like, what, what are the things you know, you're, you're being told a certain thing about your studies coming up in the place you were. Like, mm-hmm. How are, what is your responsibility as a teacher now? I'm like, anyway, just interesting stuff to think about. Yes. I mean, and for me also, I want to add that I had the lightning bolt moment where I decided that I had to do this mm. as what a career. That? Why? And it was, it was when I, it was in October of 96. Mm-hmm. So I think I must have been a sophomore. I know I must have just started my uh, my junior year, mm-hmm. and we went and saw the musical. I believe it was at the Pentagus. We went and saw Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. and all of those textures and everything. I it was like, I have to do this. There is no other choice. It was boom. I went down and I looked at the orchestra pit, you know, from above. I didn't try to get down there or anything. And it was just like, this is where I belong, Mm. is in this section. And there's no question. I had been wrangling a little bit with like, oh, do I want to go into, you know, medicine? Mm. Or do I want to go into music? And it was something I'd been wrangling with. For some reason, I felt like I had to wrangle with this at age like 16, like... (laughs) Overly well, I, responsible all the time. No, well, but you're not saying like, any, I had to make a decision. You're not saying mm-hmm. anything that's, I mean, that doesn't sound crazy to me. I mean, I remember being yeah. like 16 years old and feeling like I had to make a call. And then I remember feeling, I remember being 19 years old and feeling like I had to make a call. I remember being yeah. 35 years old and feeling like I had to make a call. And now I'm 41 yeah. and I still feel like I have to make a call. Like, yeah, truth is you don't have to make a call. You just got to make sure that you're, what you're doing every day is the thing you want to be doing. And that's, yeah. the call, that's the call you got to make. I mean, were your, were your parents supportive of you? I was lucky because they were supportive of me. Cause I think 
you and I probably both know a bunch of people whose parents said, you know, no, you're not, you're not doing that. You're going to, they either say you're not doing that or they say you're going to go into one of these like three fields. And I know a number of people like that too. Um, and I mean, frankly, most people didn't really say anything to me about it. Like, I know we like to always pick out all the people who are jerky about stuff. <laughs> I've played like plenty of gigs where there are, you know, there's someone who acts like a jerk there or they're drunk or they act wild and crazy. They say something inappropriate, but I've also played 10 times the amount of gigs where it was totally cool. So, right. you know, there were a couple of instances where I remember like one of the other parents in band or something had said something to my dad about, well, that's not really a career or something. And my dad said to me, I don't know if you heard that, but just ignore that. And I said, what? And then he repeated it to me. And I said, I don't care, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, nowadays I might be like, oh yeah, well, blah, 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 blah. Let me tell you about all the places arts exist in real life. <laughs> and I would get into a whole thing, trying to make this person realize how essential and how integrated arts are into every single thing you do all day long, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As I, I, made, I mentioned on a Facebook post actually a while ago, there's all these alloys of arts. Person who designed your knives, they were not just like an engineer or scientist. There was literally like art involved in that. Mm-hmm. There's all these alloys of arts. And so I really feel like one of the things, and I'm totally on a tangent, so I'm just, I'll make this quick. But I feel like one of the things that our arts community needs to do is actually educate the public better about like how we integrate into their lives. That there is, of course, the abstract component where, you know, you maybe, you know, there's like this weird installation somewhere, right? You know, you go into the park and there's this weird installation. You're like, we just spent how much money on that? Like, I don't care. Like, I'm happy about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then there's all this integration into regular life that arts have. And there's been a lot of that actually brought up during this pandemic with people like, you know, that, you know, going and watching Netflix and, and doing paint by number and all of these things that people are doing. And like, that's arts. Like, you are this is like one of your goals is to have like your free time as a human being doing arts or watching arts, you know, in some way. So like I was saying, you know, back then I was like, whatever, I don't care. And now I'm kind of like, um, excuse me, let me educate you a little bit. (laughs) Well, the, the thing that was, I mean, just in full disclosure, like my constant honesty moment with you is like when the pandemic first hit and it was clear that we were going to be locked down for longer than two weeks, Mm-hmm. Like there was the Gal Gadot Imagine sort of collab that came out where it was like, it was like, imagine all the people. And it's like the first sort of like collab remote thing happened. It's terrible. Everybody's off key. And then all of a sudden there was this huge push of like, artists, we need you now more than ever. And yeah. I was like, no. Nope, 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 no, 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 Like, I'm just like, no, you know what? For when the times are good, I'm begging people for scraps of to come to shows, to come to steel band concerts, whatever. Now we're all locked inside and our Netflix account is maxed out and you've watched everything there and now you want me to dance for you some more? For free? And do and it's going to be twice the amount of work? Than it is yeah. just to go to a concert. Yeah. Like, no, 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 no. Like, I was just like, like over here, like, no, 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 you don't get this. I eventually came out of that irrational sort of uh, reaction to people because I, you know, I, I understand why people feel that way. Um, but yeah. It's, but it's interesting as an artist I get it. to think about that and like what, what you're, how do you have, I mean, this is, as you were talking, I was thinking like, it's pretty you have to, it's all in the cell and how you convince, like the, like I loved the idea that the, that timpanist from the beer commercial on the Super Bowl put his feet on the thing. I saw people yeah. blow up and I saw that and I was, and I saw the sort of conversation around it with Dan and you and I was like, you know what? It's actually really good that I don't think most percussion students studying in the US right now know that when that, that there was a reason there was covers on those timpani. And it's because there's a person like you or Dan in the room who rented those timpani. Mm-hmm. And by by the way, they're the same timpani you probably rented to us when we played George Crumb's music there a couple years ago. Like, probably this stuff is mm-hmm. all like there's a person there. This isn't there's not some monster making this decision of mm-hmm. like degrading the timpani. It's like, do you want the world to know about timpani or not? Yeah. Do you want to know yeah. the world to know that this the, the Super Bowl like the Super Bowl has to interface with the economy the same one that the LA Phil has to interface with. And you are involved in that too. 
And right. like, anyway, it's just, I, I think I was shocked at how few people, I was just like, you guys didn't know that the NFL doesn't own timpani. What the fuck's wrong with you people? <laughs> like, of course they're renting it from Dan, you know, like, of course. Yeah. But, but that's the sort of yeah. thing. It's like, it's obvious to me, but it's, I don't think it's obvious to most, most percussionists that every time a major orchestra plays a show that some of that percussion equipment on the stage, some of the gear is, is rented. Mm-hmm. I think they would be interesting for places to know that most orchestras don't own a symbolum. They don't own right. a really nice celeste. They don't own right. Stokowski chimes. Like they, right. they, those aren't things that they yeah. have in their closet. They just pull out, you know, yeah. you, you're part of that economy. And I'm curious when the shutdown happened, like, What's been the biggest change for you and Dan in terms of like how the business model changes and like how have you had to adapt to that directly? Oh my gosh. I'm asking it because it seems like the most obvious question in the world when Broadway yeah. shows shut down. I imagine Carol, Carol's and Kettle's and all the companies in New York are like, there went 90% of our income. Like how the hell do we deal with this? Like what for you and Dan? How did you, how'd you deal with that? And feel free to be warts and all about that. Yeah. Um, it's a very, very dichotomous thing for us. Um, okay. So on the financial plane, you know, (laughs) we did okay. We have, we also have lost gigantic part of our income. Mm -hmm. Um, and also we were playing, we were musicians playing gigs too. Right. So we really lost a giant part of our income basically without getting into like a serious, like long thing about the financial part. Essentially we were able, we've been able to survive because we were able to patch together a little bit of savings with um, a trickle of stuff still coming in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and like PPP, like some of the governmental small business stuff. Mm -hmm. And then also actually a handful of small grants, music grants. Um, Our, our local union gave us a small grant. Um, Our city had a grant for, it was like an extension of the larger federal grant. They were actually able to give to um, some of the small businesses in the area. I've applied probably for 40 or 50 different grants. Mm -hmm. And we've received, like I said, like maybe a half a dozen of them. Uh, Also going through and just like having, we just had to get rid of a bunch of expenses. And then frankly, when you're not really operating and you're kind of in hibernation, you have less expenses anyway, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and then we had, we basically had to lay off like all of our, I mean, lay off or furlough, like all of our employees. So that's that side. We were really dependent a lot on like a lot of the live music stuff live music and touring and see the thing that's weird about it is that we were actually trying to move a little bit more into the space of well not like move like separate like and do something different but we were trying to expand i should say into the space of you know doing more recorded Mm -hmm. types of things and and working with composers and we were actually we were actually going there we were going there anyway but you know not developed enough to be able to like sustain us you know? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially we've been on the financial side, we've had to do like a whole bunch of patchwork to make that happen. You know, we also have three kids. So it's not as simple as like, well, I'm just going to go to work 12 hours a day, every single day and just somehow figure this out. It's been like a real dance of trying to figure out how to keep the infrastructure going how to make things better in the interim in terms of making things better for now. But then when, when things kind of like reopen, making them better for the future, like there's been a number of reorganizational things we've been like working on. There's Mm -hmm. been some progress, actual progress we've been trying to work on that we didn't have time for before. Um, I don't have like any real simple like line that I could just say where this is exactly how we did it because I feel like we're still figuring it out, even though we're going on month 12 right now. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I'm not looking for an answer. I mean, I'm, I, everything, yeah. you're, everything you're saying is like right in line with what's so, I mean, there's a lot of things like, oh yeah, we don't have all of the, we don't spend money on travel when we don't have to yeah. travel. Like there's, there are some upsides. You're like, whoa, it's that's, like, that's crazy. Like 
maybe I just shouldn't do that anymore. So I don't have to have the expense. And yeah. I don't have to make the money to have the expense. <laughs> there is a tiny part of me that's like looking at the budget number and being like, we got to keep doing that. That's pretty great. You know, like, um, but I imagine the hardest part of that, we have a small staff. We did not yeah. have to let anybody go, but I imagine that's the hardest part of all of this is looking at somebody who works for you and be like, you can't work for me anymore. And it's not really your fault or my fault, <laughs> you know, like that sucks. Yep. And that's, yeah. the, I mean, that's the sucks. thing when, when people are looking at like students are looking at you or they're looking at me and they're like, Oh, I want to do what you're doing. It's like, are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure about that? <laughs> have you thought this through? What happens yeah. if you have to fire your friend? There's a yeah, grunt work in there. It's not all glamorous. Um, doesn't mean that there aren't times when it's really, it can be really fun and really creative. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's been tough. Also, there's this balance. You're like, Hey, I'm trying to make some sort of progress on something yet. I have no staff to really help me. (laughs) I have no one to help me like reorganize this shelf. It's not just like, Oh, I'm putting little boxes that you have to use like an order picker, you know, and we're having to move huge cases and we're, it's just like this everything is a huge deal when you don't really have any help. And then when you have three kids at home. So, <laughs> well, let me, let me ask. My, my kid, I look at my arm. My kid like went crazy on my arm with face paint today. So I was going to ask I, if that's like a new tat. It looks like a, like an arty tattoo as well. I thought yeah. like, that's kind of rad. Here's the side. Yeah. I'm a big fan. I, I like it. You should just get that done as a tattoo. Just take your arms in and be like, just put this in print, please. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to ask you like, you know, one of the things you, you've mentioned a few things about, like, the word belonging has come up and sort of how in your studies, like, trying to figure out where you, like, what niche you fit into. Um, you know, I remember there was a guy at the University of Akron who was an alum. His name was Jack Butcher. And he opened not a rental place, but a, like, instrument repair place. Mm-hmm. And he always, everybody talked about him with this reverence, but it was sort of like, well, he does instrument repair. And I'm like, what? Well, he kind of seems like one of the most important graduates from this entire place. Like, like, why mm-hmm. aren't we teaching? Why are we, you know, how are we teaching? Could you study music if your main passion, could you go get a, go, go get a music degree if your main passion was doing the things that Jack does? Like, I would venture to say he repairs instruments and looks at instruments the way he does because of the classical music studies he's had. And I would venture the way mm-hmm. you and Dan look at instruments and the way you mm-hmm. curate them, the way you conserve, the way you rent them out, what you're, all of those things are because you've spent time playing in an orchestra. You're not just like a random business person who's like, yeah, I'm going to start an instrument rental company. Um, right. And I know part of that belonging comes from representation in the field seeing this mm-hmm. stuff happen. And and I know in particular for you, I've seen you comment on things like gender. And I'm curious for you, like coming into the field, um, what are some things that you've noticed that you noticed early on that were just like, whoa, that has, we got to, we got to deal with that. And then wh- is there any progress? Are things getting any better and how are we getting better and how can we continue to do better in talking about this stuff? This is sort of going back to the initial sort of like you're braver on Facebook than I am. Like when I see people like I'm always I don't know. I'm just afraid to get into squabbling matches because I don't feel like they ever go anywhere on Facebook. But but yeah, I know. You know, I I want to stand up and defend and help people, but I just feel like it doesn't go anywhere. But I'm anyway, sorry, you can answer the question. No, no, it's all good. No, I like and it's a cool topic. I mean, listen, I didn't realize a lot of this. If we're going to talk about just like gender right now. I didn't realize a lot of this gender stuff until I was later, mm-hmm. until I was older, until, until it was later and I was older. There were some things when I look back at it where I'm like, you know, I think that maybe if I was a dude, I wouldn't have been treated that way. Like, for example, I was section leader when I was in high school, mm-hmm. a pit. Mm-hmm. We had 18 people in the pit. It was gigantic. Like I said, it was like drum corps style clean everything has to be clean you know we're getting you know it's just this it's this thing it's it has to be clean and it was miserable being section leader miserable i don't know who thinks that they can give their friends push-ups and you're still going to be friends by the end of the semester (laughs) you know know. what i mean if i could go back i never would have taken that job Mm. i was basically kind of like just kind of it was kind of normal that I was just going to be the next one in line. I was already, like I said, I already decided I was going to be a musician by the time I came around. Mm-hmm. 
So it wasn't like it was me versus like five other people. And I was like, no, 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 no. I really want to do it. It was kind of just like this thing that happened. Mm -hmm. I would never have done that job again, ever. And I think that maybe there was some of that stuff in there where if I was a dude, maybe some of the stuff that had happened where maybe I was being intense would have been maybe portrayed a little bit differently Mm -hmm. if I was male. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, I've had a number of incidences, incidents, whatever incidences <laughs> happened to me where I'm pretty sure it's because I am who I am. Mm-hmm. Let's just say it that way. Mm-hmm. And it probably wouldn't have happened to someone else, but there's no like proof. I'm not like, Hey, let me sit down with you now and let's talk about all of this and let's see yeah. where this is coming from. Right. Yeah. So a lot of this, some of this stuff is just assumed that happens to, um, you know, women or, you know, of course, you know, Anyone, let's just say who's um, not in your like kind of stereotypical, because there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people who are not stereotypical. So I'm just going to kind of use that as the characterization mm-hmm, of all mm-hmm, of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of it that's kind of like assumed that that's what it is, where it's like, if, would you really do that to, you know, someone who seems stereotypical? And then there's some things that actually are direct. Where you're literally said, you're like told <laughs> yeah, there's something. I've had probably a lot more of the, what I'm assuming is that than the actual direct things. Mm. I've had a number of direct things, but like I said, I probably had a lot more of the indirect. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there's levels yeah. to the game, you know, like there's, I, I have, I've used this analogy and other things. It's like, like with, well, with racism, for example, it's like there's first degree murder. Yeah. And then there's second degree murder and third degree murder and then involuntary manslaughter and then crime of passion like there's all we've we've yeah. come up with with labels for all of these different versions that end in someone dying right because yeah. the context behind all of them are way different you can pre-plan a murder and co- conspire with somebody over time that's a different thing than hitting someone with your car by accident because you fell asleep at the wheel like right right and i think in these instances like i'm really curious about sort of drilling down on them and trying to figure it like I know for me like I, I I've been thinking a lot about I grew up in a pretty male dominated percussion section I was taught by a woman her name is Joan Wenzel she is one of my hero heroine in life heroines heroines is that right yeah it is it's heroin she is one of it's my hero- heroines in life and just a badass percussionist um I think there were like two or three girls in the section but mm-hmm. like I was the guy, I couldn't read pitches and the flute player would always, she would always come up and read the bell parts for Sousa marches. And mm-hmm. when I think like, I'm pretty sure in that moment, if the flute player was a guy, I would have been like, get up here. Like it wasn't a like gender thing. It was like, who can read music? <laughs> not yeah. me and not anybody yeah. else in our section. And so yeah. like, when I think of those moments in my upbringing, there was definitely that, um, College, same deal. There was like three girls in the studio at the University of Akron when I was there. There were two at Yale. Out of the five students when I was there, my my first year, there were two out of the five were women. And that was like, again, it's like you get a little, when two-thirds or two-fifths of the group is one gender, it's like all of a sudden the balance, I don't want to say the balance of power, like there's some struggle inherent there anyway. I mean, Gwen Burgett mm-hmm. and Ayano Katoka are like two of my favorite people in the world. Like there wasn't a fight. But all of a sudden you're like, oh. Yeah. All right. I can't just be bro, Josh bro from, you know, Dover or whenever I'm with, yes. like, it's different. And Ayano's Japanese and Gwen's from, you know, it's like, oh, okay, cool. I have to learn about these other things now. And yeah, um, I don't know. It's just this sort of stuff is interesting to, for me to talk about. And I'm curious. I'm curious. Yeah. The, the reason I want to talk to you about on social media is I feel I want to, I want to address my fear with you because I want you to help me. This is my podcast is just a therapy session for me, by the way. I just, I hope you're okay. No, it's all good. I love it. (laughs) I love it. And I love the concert honesty aspect and we can get into that in a bit, but yes, I love it. Don't worry about it. I kind of regardless of what the fight is on social media, no matter who's Mm -hmm. talking about what, even if it's something I vehemently agree with, I very rarely will chime in in the comment thread in support or deny of or in support of, or an advocation against something. Um, mainly because I'm someone who like, I think I've, the thing I've learned about this pandemic is that I rely heavily on context and tone. It's like, I've, Mm -hmm. I've learned how to speak this particular language and Facebook makes me speak Swahili a little bit in order to understand what's happening. And Mm -hmm. I don't, first of all, I like you a lot. 
I'll happily be like, hey, Abby, I think you're great. But you know who else I've just said I think you're great to? You're 3,000 other friends who are total strangers to me. And if one of them, for some reason, sees me in a Cleveland hat and is like, wait a minute, the Cleveland Indians need to change their logo. He's a racist. Like, all of a sudden, I've got, like, some – anyway, that's my anxiety. Yeah. It's not completely yeah. rational or founded. But I'm curious for you, how do you see the sort of – how do you interface with social media and how do you personally deal with that on a personal level? Or do you have I, the, do you have those anxieties? Maybe I'm the only one and I just need to buck up. Nah. Like I said, I don't post everything. I think mm. there's times I have to, I have to, you know, have a, like my own identity and I can't get wrapped up into everything. There are times I've started to write something and I delete it. This happens plenty to me more often than not. Now I just don't say anything because I already know that I'm going to end up deleting it. And I'm not saying that I'm doing that because I'm saying something really awful, at least in my opinion, it's just because I, I can't be on social media all day. And I also think that some people are too far gone and social media is not going to be the thing that changes them. Mm. They need like an experience. They need, you know, I'm a big advocate of, for example, can maybe make some people angry right now, but because of a lot of the things I've been through and I have this family of doctors, I'm a big advocate of a really high quality universal healthcare system set up. Mm-hmm. Notice how I said high quality universal healthcare. I didn't just say universal healthcare. There's no reason to do it if you're not going to make it good. And we're going to get some of this, these business people out of the mix. Okay. Um, I don't think you didn't make me angry with that. I grew up in a Rush Limbaugh household. Um, oh, RIP yeah. Rush. But, you know, I, I understand why people, um, I understand why people have the, the sort of like socialized medicine. No. Like, give me my yeah. Medicare. It's like, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Like, I understand because I grew up in a house where that was being talked a lot about. So I, I, I'm just saying I agree with you. But I think it's how that stuff – when I said earlier about it's all in the pitch or all in the cell, like, mm-hmm. how that stuff is communicated to a bunch of folks who have heard one thing is really right. cru- really crucial. You know? Right. I mean, this is a hairy topic. So, I mean, if I'm going to kind of just break it down without writing a five- or ten-page essay right now, I'm going to break it down. I like pragmatism, right? I like solving problems and I like having ideals about humanism, but it needs to include some pragmatism of like, how are we going to get there types of things. Mm. And I think that for the people who may be on the fence on social media, that stuff can be effective. I think, like I said, there are people who are going to need to have experiences of going back to healthcare, like going and you know, getting in a car accident and then having to be, you know, intubated in the hospital with their other four family members and then owing Mm $50,000 because that's their, you know, out-of-pocket maximum who ended up in a hospital that was out of network because this stuff happens, okay? It happens a lot. And they're going to need the actual experience themselves to then decide that, you know, this is something that's important to them. I try to have the perspective of, or I'm hoping that I don't have to have every single experience to have a perspective that is more humanistic. I'd like to believe people when they say that they are suffering in some way. Mm. And I'd like to help make that better for them. And I'm not saying that I'm the person that's going to show up at their door and make that better for them, but I would like to help the movement that helps make that suffering better for them i see a lot of things in a systemic way where i'd rather deal with things upstream and deal with problems before they get really bad after instead of dealing with them much later when they're very hard to be reversed very expensive to be reversed Mm -hmm. they've done tons of damage with a huge ripple effect i I just want one of the ways yeah sorry i just wanted there's two things the thing you said about like you wanting to be a part of the conversation to help people feel supported but then also i like that you said the word focusing on the upstream like like looking forward like one of the things that just bums me out and scares me a little bit is the amount of time that's spent on something that happened 10 years ago or you know somebody said something so now we've got to have a talk about whether or not this person should be part of this movement whether they should have any say in anything like Mm -hmm. hey while we're all turned around looking backwards there's weeds growing ahead of us and we're going to have to cut them out and that's going to take time too. And I'd far prefer to move this ball forward a foot over the course of my (laughs) lifetime than to only push it an inch and have just spent all this time cleaning up all the mess behind me. Like I don't, 
I understand mm-hmm. there's, there's inherent privilege in that world worldview too. I also live in a world mostly where I, I, I get to live in the most usable part of society. I'm in the middle of the road. I'm just like, life is, this is smooth. There's no potholes here. This is fucking great. You know, I am aware that, you know, that that's not the case for everybody. But in general, I love that you sort of, your focus is on this sort of upstream mentality. Because I think that's where the problems are. That's where the rocks are. That's where the, that's where the deep, that's where the quicksand is, is ahead of us. And I'm not going to walk backwards. What's the point? You know? Well, and that's why like dealing with, that's why dealing with problems as on a social and psychological level is so important because that is the upstream mm-hmm. is social and psychological. When you're dealing things and you're trying to patch things up later after things are really jacked up when you haven't, for example, cause some people are probably like, what are you talking about? When you haven't given parents enough support or you don't, even or we haven't offered parenting classes to anyone or we haven't done after school activities we haven't introduced kids to music or art or sports and we just basically say whatever they'll just figure it out on their own you're gonna pay for that later so i think that dealing with things on that side is really important and i think the psychological part is really important because no matter what there's always gonna we're humans and like our brains are in some ways extremely developed and in some ways extremely primal <laughs> still And that part is super important to be dealing with. There just is not enough of that support out there. And that's really the upstream I'm talking about as well. Yeah. I mean, I I feel like I don't, I mean, these conversations are happening at places like NYU and Princeton and so is having them in various ways. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm reminded, so did a gig in Ukraine. When I first joined the group, we were in Ukraine and in Kiev or in in Odessa. And one of the things about the town then was that there was a lot of construction going on in all these old buildings. And what they do, at least in Ukraine at that time, was they had a scrim that they would put up in front of the building that was the original image of the building. Hmm. So it would look like there was just a screen in front and you just like, oh, that's a picture of the building. And behind it was the building that was rotten and falling down. But that was like, we're just going to put a scrim up here. And I just feel like sometimes in these movements, I'm just like, are you just putting a scrim up? (laughs) Like, cool. We like, it's all this stuff. It's like, we changed the name of Aunt Aunt Jemima on the syrup thing. We changed names on buildings. Like that stuff is key. I I don't think that stuff is unimportant symbolically. I think it is. Right. But it's it's easier stuff to do. But that's one, that's just sort of like, whoop one hoist of the scrim up. Yeah. I'm like, okay, just keep doing that stuff. And eventually you'll have a scrim up. That's like, look, look where we are. Yeah. Isn't this what yeah. you want? And you get inside yeah. and it's like, wait a minute, the building still has termites and like, you didn't fix any yeah. of the other stuff, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think, I think, you know, well, a couple of things. I'm going to touch on one more thing I wanted to say. I love uh, in terms of reasoning with people, I love the logical fallacies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know those that big list of logical fallacies i love i i love those i love that's the pragmatism that i love relying on of like if i'm going to make an argument it's got to be from somewhere that's sound you know there's all these logical fallacies and people don't know what i'm talking about look them up because there's a whole bunch of them that's super interesting and actually wikipedia has the whole list of them with descriptions well this this goes to um, the like when we were talking earlier about first and second degree murder or whatever it's like this is a, like People often, I see this all the time, in these logical fallacies, one of them is called a moral equivalency, where you mm-hmm. where you make an argument, you see, um, you know, um, an insurrectionist beating a cop to death, for example, uh, with a fire extinguisher and they're storming the Capitol. And then the moral equivalency is, well, here's a cop and a protester in Seattle pushing each other back and forth. Like, well, it's like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, they're both at a protest. But you've drawn a moral equivalency as if both of those two things are about the same issues, that they're about, that the circumstances are all the same. Like, there's not a moral equivalence here. Like, you're, yes, yeah. an old lady ran over somebody at a stop sign. And yes, John Joe Schmo was drunk and hit somebody. You can't be like, well, I mean, old ladies are going to get in cars, so why should we have drunk driving accidents? Like, wait a minute. You can't draw the moral equivalency between that old lady and that person who got in the car. Like, yes, death occurred in both instances, but there's nuance. There are levels to this game, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and people in general, like our, like, I mean, I'm going to say like our population, like awful. They're like awful. At, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, well, that's, that's why they exist. Uh, it's because I come from that place. So I try to like always make comments that like are still sound with those. Um, the, Nirv- the Nirvana fallacy where, oh my gosh, hold on one second. 
and decline. Okay. Sorry. Um, hello. Okay. Yeah. My neighbor just tried calling me. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. The Nirvana fallacy where like, it's not worth doing unless it's perfect. You know, I could go mm-hmm. on and on mm-hmm. and on and on. What I wanted to say though, I was just trying to make, I was just trying to mention that really quick. Um, what I wanted to say is that with one of the things that you were asking about, like progress and things like that, mm-hmm. do I think we've made progress? Yeah. I totally think we've actually made progress in terms of bringing some of the stuff out. Like some of these things that, you know, some of the aggression towards other people that maybe aggression, you know, aggression doesn't always mean I'm clubbing someone over the head. Aggression is the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And we've definitely made progress on that. I feel like I think that a lot of um, what I, one of the things I love about right now is that especially with social media actually is that we've allowed vulnerability to come in. You know, I think it's really cool that we're actually allowing people to be vulnerable. And, you know, we've all seen these stories or these memes or all of these, you know, these, these things where people say, here's what happened to me, you know, basically. And it's kind of bringing a lot of the stuff out and the vulnerability aspect is very cool. I think, and that's what I like about your concert honesty stuff. You know, if we're going to go back to music, I think that music that, for me, and this is totally my opinion because I completely know that other people get things out of music that I don't get. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not trying to say that my perception of music needs to be someone else's and that this yeah. is it. No, it's yours. So just understand that. Okay. I, I like music that is fun for me to play mm-hmm. and, and doesn't put me through an infinite amount of stress. And that doesn't mean that I like, that doesn't mean I'm not going to try. It doesn't mean I like slacking off. It doesn't mean that I want to be a good player. It doesn't, you know, it's really easy to go to that place. Well, you just like playing stuff that's easy. You, everything you play is diatonic. <laughs> like when you improvise, you must just play all diatonics. Blah, blah, blah. No, actually I, I love improvising and every day I'm like, I work on it and I'm mm-hmm. trying to get better. And I've been working on it for many years, but I don't want to, have my life consumed by music that stresses me out or it's like oh my god i better get every single note perfect every single time or oh my gosh and i feel like there's a lot of that out there and i hope that if there is music that does stress someone out a lot i hope that they maybe are willing to take a different approach to it mm. you know well the constant honesty because thing I- the constant honesty yeah, thing. Sorry to interrupt, Abby. I mean, the constant honesty yeah. thing w- is a complete defense mechanism. I mean, I, I hate criticism because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a very crit- self-critical person. I think I'm literally the worst person in any room at any given time. Like, so, like, there's nobody in the room going to convince me that I'm worse than them. You know, like that's that's the thing. Like that 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 I'm not the hottest hot mess in that room. Like. <laughs> And so for me, it was the constant honesty was just a, and also I, I did track a little bit in some of my students, this sort of like fear of like, and I think it stems a little bit from the, I think it, or sorry, it can possibly stem from the orchestral sort of ideology and the drum corps a little bit where, and I, th- I think the orchestral one has perhaps had more of an influence on people's mindsets around this stuff because I don't know, like drum corps, you're in the same room with people for three months at a time. Mm-hmm. Orchestra auditions, you're not even getting in the room with those same people until you can play Porgy and Bess perfectly once at the drop of mm-hmm. a hat whenever your name is called. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a that's a wholly mm-hmm. different thing. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I just, I wish that drum corps... I wish there was like a constant honesty version of drum corps where like Brian Zader or, you know, uh, I, I don't even like know the names in the drum corps that, that like that, that great, like Brian Rennick mm-hmm. and like, like and folks who are just like legit, who are the godfathers and godmothers of drum corps. Like they need to come out and be like, Oh yeah, here's a video of me totally shit in the bed. Like, <laughs> like that sort of stuff. Like I, there's just a little less anxiety. And the orchestra world for me was, was that also getting a college teaching job? was like, there's one way to do this. Like, there's a right way to do this. And so percussion, I feel like, gave me the outlet to where, like, yes, I got to pay my bills. I can't walk out on stage and totally crap my pants on Mallet Quartet or Third Construction or Caroline Shot. Like, I can't do that. Yeah. But, because I'm with you. 
I don't like music that overly taxes me and makes me stressed out. That's a lot of the music I happen to play. But it doesn't mean that we're, but, but it doesn't mean that we're slackers. It's like I want to have the. It's, no, it's this a, is like a more of an emotional thing where it's like I want to be able to like actually thoroughly enjoy it. And for my personality, stuff that really stresses me out makes it hard for me to enjoy it. Other people like being they actually like being stressed. Yeah. You know, they want to like they want to go through those different methods, the orchestral methods of I don't know. There was that one I saw where you like stack up the pennies and then you, I don't know. There's this whole thing and they like that. And that's their sport. And mm-hmm. that's fine. If they want to do that and that makes them happy, totally, totally mm-hmm. fine. You know, like, um, that's not for me. Yeah. That doesn't mean, though, that I'm not pushing myself every day to make progress in music. But I, I chose to not go into the orchestral, the straight ahead orchestral music world, kind of for that reason. But I see a value in it. I absolutely see a value in it. I absolutely, you know, respect those players. It has nothing to do with that. It's just not the right fit for exactly me. Well, I think in my personality. Yeah, and maybe this the is three amigos. Maybe this is my 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 sort of like what I should do is take ownership and be like, well, maybe I should do some constant honesty podcasts with like Jim Baber and Joe Pereira and and like sit down and talk with these guys who you know like one one of the most telling things for me we we did uh, the Lang David Lang Concerto Man Made um, a couple of years ago in L A with mm-hmm. with Dudamel and the L A Phil and this the first we were the first half of the concert intermission Mahler five like what a crazy program and like it was just an honor to even be on that program right <laughs> Dudamel's conducting and they rehearsed man made enough to make it sound great and it's like you got to spend the rest of the week on Mahler 5 for Christ's sake right so they're they're in there going around there's a big violin solo in one of the movements and it's like the whole orchestra's like woo and this violin comes in right so they're they're in the show mm-hmm. like we get done we're feeling mm-hmm. great we're backstage we're watching Dudamel is like blah 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 the violin soloist comes in like two bars early and it's All just right. sawn away. And Dudamel looks like, whoo, like snaps and look at him, gives him like the one minute finger. And it's just like, boom, cues him again. And they walk off stage. I'm like, this is the concert master from the L.A. film. Yeah. And he walked yeah. and, and he just was like, boo. And then he stopped and he was like, <laughs> boo, like just played it again. And I, I walked off stage and Dudamel was laughing hysterically. He just walked back and the guy was like, I'm so sorry. And he's just like, that was awesome. You know, and they walked by. Yeah. Like, this I'm half tempted. Well, to, I'm half tempted to think that the French horn, the French horn entrance in Beethoven three, like that feels uh, wrong, was uh-huh. like the French horn player came in in the right place but was wrong, and and Beethoven was like, oh no, we got to keep that. That was way cooler, you know. Like that would make more sense to me as a you know as a musician. Right. But I mean, this is why people are going to see humans playing live music because there is an acrobatic thing of pulling something off live versus mm-hmm. I'm going to go see a bunch of robots play music. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's way more thrilling to have like some soul in there. Not only the soul of the people like playing, but the soul of praising and the little bit of, you know, playing just a little bit out of tune can actually make it sound fuller. And I mean, mm-hmm. there's a reason why we haven't just, converted over to like you know animatronic like concerts there's a reason the chuck e cheese model as they say i dig it i dig it i love it i love it when stuff goes wrong i'm serious no i did well i i like i make a living off of it now i mean i don't i i rely heavily on things going going wrong you know going wrong usually i mean yes it can also mean you don't know what you're doing um that you haven't you haven't practiced yeah. there, there's a sort of line you walk of like oh you, you just a, need to practice it's certainly a bell curve <laughs> yeah you need to go pick, pick up some sticks and move your hands around a bit son i think that's what you got to do um but uh but yeah i mean i think this sort of and i, I as you were talking about um you know your passions i see the way that you and dan treat like it's a little bit like the Mahler sort of, or the uh, the the Wagner Gazan. Like everything is important. The hall you're playing is important. Who we have mics, putting mics on the instruments is important. George Crumb's music would not have sounded like it sounded when we did it in California, and if Dan had not and you had not organized that gear to come up, like there's an important role you play, and I think in terms of advocacy and uh, education, like. 
I think it was good mm-hmm. that that Tempanus put I just to sort of wrap up here like I think it was good the Tempanus had his feet. I was glad to see that because it actually sort of pulled open a portal to our field that was like, you know, a lot yep. of my students are now like I can make money renting timpani to the NFL. Like that never even crossed <laughs> anybody's mind that that would be something they could do. You know, not that that's what you wake up every day being like I can't wait till they call again, but like Yeah. It's part of it. And you, you serve the NFL. You also serve so percussion. And um, I just want to say, like, I've stolen ex- almost exactly an hour of your life, Abby. And um, oh, I, it's all good. I want you to relay to Dan that while he's lovely, you are way more enjoyable to chat with. <laughs> <laughs> That's awkward. You can relay that to him. <laughs> nope. You're married to him. Go ahead and not tag him with that. You're married to him. I, in the in the coronavirus times, I'm operating under the you touched him last rule. And you touched Dan last. <laughs> you got to tell him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, if, if I could make like a parting comment. Yeah, sure. About the soul and humans playing music. You know, in percussion, you know, listen, some of percussionists, some of percussion and percussionists are getting replaced by samples. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's happening in some of the recorded stuff. What I would encourage is for percussionists to keep going with the development of the art form, keep going with the finding of different sounds, because it is not over for these acoustic instruments. Mm -hmm. You know, the digital world is going nuts. I mean, I'm on a whole bunch of different composer groups and I work with some composers, you know, film composers and stuff. And oops, hold on one second. Hold on. You're good. My, um. Is Dan calling Hold on. Tell Dan you're working. No, it's like someone like messaged me. Actually, one of the composer people I'm working with messaged me on Facebook and the whole screen blew. So anyway, sorry about that. That completely ruined my vibe. But hey, whatever. There's that soul again of things getting messed up. Keep (laughs) Keep exploring and developing the art form is where you left off, I believe. Yeah, so you keep. It keeps developing the art form. And when it comes to the digital side, like I was saying, I work with like a number of composers or whatever, and the digital side is going crazy. It's just, there's just so much development. And I can tell you that we've done a lot of, you know, I've played for a lot of composers. We've done a lot of workshopping and we've done a lot of sound exploration. And there is so much to be done. And essentially, if you want to keep that soul in the music and you want to keep being relevant, it's really important to keep developing the field. So go ahead and, you know, hack away. Like I was, you know, you want to hack away at Porgy for 10 hours? Great. But also, I think it's important for the percussion field and percussionists to kind of keep developing, you know, uh, the actual art form because mm-hmm. it will be relevant. It will stay relevant in not just percussion world because it's important that we're not just relevant and it's percussionist to percussionist, but we're actually relevant in the music world and then media and art and, you know, the whole like the whole thing. So I think it's I think they're I think it's all important actually. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's a that's an amazing place to sort of like put a button on this. And my listen, this is not the last time you and I will ever chat. My door is always open. If there's anything else you want to, you know, another occasion pops up, just message me. You know where to find me. This wasn't that Sounds hard. Sounds cool. My me scheduling it was the hardest part. And I think once I finally opened my date book and was like, let's do this. Like so that like just don't hesitate. But um, where can folks find out, like, if there's a young percussionist coming up or a composer who's psyched about sort of like, you have one of the world's largest collections of just weird percussion instruments in general, but also Emil Richards' collection, personal collection, you have a lot of that. If folks, a composer yeah. wanted to learn about like, wait a minute, you were doing a thing with composers, where should they look? I know LA Percussion, like, what's the website? Where can folks find out about what you're doing? I mean, any of the LA Percussion Rentals social media um, would be a good start. And then I also have another page that I started called 22nd Perk, mm-hmm. which is essentially a place where I kind of just started actually not that long ago, but it's, it's been pretty cool so far. Basically, it's a place where composers will submit something they're working on. They want to hear it for real, trying to mm-hmm. work out logistics, whatever. And I have some social media for that. So it's like it's called 22nd Perk. Basically, awesome. I think that's on Instagram, it's on Facebook, and there is a website. So that's kind of where I'm posting a lot of this this kind of stuff right now. Okay, that's awesome. I'll check out the 20-second perk thing. That sounds like an amazing sort of like infrastructure for Compose. Like, is it that they have to submit like 20-second long chunks and that you'll try it out and send it back to them? Yeah, and sometimes before I actually do it, I'll give them notes like, so um, that's not going to happen at like 160 BPM. 
on this instrument per se, unless you want, I mean, unless you really want them to have to bring it home and shed it for 10 hours. But if you actually want someone to play, there's a whole, like there's a whole market economy here. Like, like a, like an offshoot of like, I'll just try out your stuff and send it back to you. Like there's no strings attached. Like you pay me 10 bucks. I'll record these, these 20 bars for you and send it back to you. Like just so you, all right, now you're, you're getting, you're getting my juices flowing, flowing here, Abby. This is, (laughs) Listen, Papa's got to eat, you know. Like, well, I'll 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 cut you in. I'll cut you in on this. Um, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. That sounds awesome. I'll check it out. I think that's a really yeah. amazing idea, and I think it would be a great resource for composers. But listen, all joking aside, tell Dan I love him, and um, and okay. go get that tattoo done. I think that's. I think, <laughs> I think you're onto something there. Take care. So see you, Abby. Thanks. Take it easy. Bye. Good to talk to you. Likewise. Okay. Bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, My good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check him out, liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, and so percussion, as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner builder. Um, just a really nice guy. Very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check him out. And finally, Aleandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan centric. You can check him out at mango chow, C-H-O-W, clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out. Mango chow, clothing.com. Okay. Hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.